ago, Friday, uh, a couple of days ago, three weeks ago, I was in uh, Nicaragua. Uh, there with my daughter and a couple of the people from Gateway, and I was very excited to be there. But um, but, but 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 there was one little kind of caveat to the whole trip, and that is that there's a a, a musician. One of my favorites of all time named Steve Taylor. And uh, you might be familiar with him. And Steve was coming to Portland to do a concert on that Friday night. And I was so, I was very excited to be in Nicaragua. But I was kind of bummed because I knew like one of the best concerts ever was going to be taking place on that Friday night. So anyways, it was, it was Friday and I was, I was working at the farm that day, putting in a septic system, worked hard. And I tried not to think about the concert. And then I got home. We're going to wash up and go to dinner. And I, I, I put on Facebook for a minute. And unfortunately, all of my friends were like, I'm going to the concert. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be the best concert in all of history. They'll be talking about this forever in heaven. And, you know, I'm just like, oh, well, I'm not, not going to the concert. And so anyways, I was getting ready to go to dinner. And, and then so I, I saw something on Facebook. And um, so it's called it's called, this is the brainchild of uh, Scott Rainey, I think. And it's called uh, Pastor on a Stick. So <laughs> Here was, the, here was the idea. So Scott came up with this. He made, and he posted this on Facebook. And I'll, so I'll read it for you here. Here's what it says on the stick. It says, genuine made in USA pastor on a stick. When the board certified holy man can't make the show because he's on a mission trip, bring the next best thing. And so they had three of these. And they, so I couldn't be at the concert, but my friends kind of carried me there, literally, if you will. And I was apparently... I was the life of the party that night. I mean, here I am with the bouncer, right? He likes me. It's got, um, I got my picture taken with Steve Taylor. A um, couple pictures taken with Steve. Apparently, we're very good buddies. He looks like we've been friends for years. Um, now, I don't know if you could see, I was like front row at the concert. I don't know why I'm looking away, but I'm, I'm there. Um, this is me with the drummer who is also the lead singer for the Newsboys for a time. So we're looking pretty friendly there. Um, so this is, uh, my wife is there and some other good friends were there. We just had a great time of fellowship. Um, this guy was the opening act and apparently I was kind of, I don't know why, but I was creeping on him. I was following him around. I don't know what the deal was. Um, I don't know this guy, but he saw two of me and wanted to high five my face. Uh, don't know him, but apparently he likes me a lot. I don't know them. I have no idea who they are, but so it was good to go to the concert. It was good to be pastor on a stick. And um, I tell you that because sometimes we need a little, we need a little help from our friends. That, that could be a song, couldn't it? But sometimes we need, we need help from our friends. And, and that's where we're going tonight. We're going to tell the story of a guy who needed some help from his friends. He needed to get somewhere that he couldn't get to on his own. So let's talk first about the context of Luke 5. So we've been talking about Jesus' teaching. Jesus is, is healing. Uh, crowds of people are coming to see Jesus. Like people he doesn't even know are coming to hang out with him. He's, he's, he's getting some solitude. Remember last week, it's away. Has a little solitude. Jumps right back into ministry. So we're going to begin. We're going to pick up the story here in verse 17. And the first thing we're going to notice is this. We got some Pharisees in the story who separate. Now, you're probably familiar with Pharisees, but Pharisees have never come up in the Gospel of Luke until right now. Um, so we're going to talk about them. Now in verse 17, the story begins this way. 
Now, one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were, were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So these, these religious leaders had come from all over and, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. So now in the passage, and if you've been with us, we're kind of, let's see, we started at the beginning of November, so we're kind of slowly making our way through the gospel. We're, being, we're still kind of being introduced to people. And tonight we're introduced to two groups, the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, those teachers of the law, those are, those are scribes, as we'll see a few verses later. Now, now scribes are, are teachers. They are, they are professional theologians, if you will. They, these are men who were well-educated, and it was their job in those days to interpret the Old Testament and to apply it to people around them. That was their job. They're, they're very powerful. They're, they're very influential. They're respected, and they tend to be wealthy, and they are they are Bible nerds. That's what they are. And they're, they're very powerful. And then there are the Pharisees. So it's important to understand there's two different groups here. Now the Pharisees were very different from the scribes because they weren't professional spiritual leaders. They were lay leaders, right? They, they had other jobs and they did this on the side. They were not formally educated like the, like the scribes were. They were kind of, they, they didn't have any direct authority. Now, we kind of miss that sometimes because when we read about the Pharisees, it seems like they were powerful. But all of their power came from the scribe who, who was overseeing them. They were kind of, tended to be middle class. They were organized into small groups of men who, and each one of these groups had a scribe that oversaw them. And so the, the scribe was the one who interpreted scripture and came up with the rules. And the, the Pharisees were kind of the guys who enforced the rules. They were kind of like the, they're kind of like the Old Testament model mafia, if you will, um, in those days. Now, they started with a great mission uh, statement in mind, and that is that during the Babylonian captivity, when the, when the Pharisees kind of came into power, um, they wanted every Jew to know the Old Testament and, and to love the Old Testament and to obey the Old Testament. That was, that was what they wanted. Honorable goal. You know, they wanted to prepare society and people for God's kingdom. That's why they started. But unfortunately, and this happens sometimes, over the years, they got a little bit off track. A little bit. They got a lot off track. And they, so they started like, they started adding rules to the Old Testament. Like they'd have the Old Testament in the interpretation. But then they would come up with their own rules and they would make them on par with Scripture so that after a while, they would teach people and they would teach some stuff from the Old Testament and they would just teach some of their own stuff and they wouldn't tell people what was what. Their own rules would be on par with Scripture. And, and they introduced rules and they introduced rituals. And, and instead of living by faith, they turned a relationship with God into a fearful and joyless routine. And by the time of Christ, they're actually enemies of true faith. Wasn't how they started. Wasn't their original intention at all. But this is where they, they end up by this time in history. Now the word Pharisee literally means separated one. And so they were called Pharisees for a reason. They kind of, they, they, they thought that sin and, and unspirituality was kind of like the flu. They thought it was something that you caught from people around you. Now, of course, sin is definitely out in society. It's out in the world. But primarily, sin is in here, right? It's, it's in your heart. 
And so what they did was they, they pretty much just turned sin into a thing that was out there and, and they had the strategy for personal holiness. And this is what it was. You just kept separate from everything that was unholy. Anything that was unholy, anything that might be perceived as unholy, they would say, don't get around it, don't get near it, don't look at it, don't drink it, don't, you know, don't, don't have anything to, and if there were unspiritual people around you, you were to avoid them too. Completely separate yourself, that was a Pharisee, from everything that you perceive to be unholy and ungodly. So they came up with all of, these, all of these rules, how to avoid sin and how to avoid sinners, how to, how to keep distance and even like literally with a tape measure, how much distance you had to keep between yourself and unholy people and you know, you weren't supposed to talk with them or touch them. You didn't associate with unspiritual people. You didn't live next door to them. You didn't have dinner. You didn't invite them over to your house. So instead of being true spiritual leaders, by this time in history, they are just focused on keeping their distance from everything that's unholy. They're not interested in helping people spiritually. They're not interested in serving or in loving. And I, I just say this, we'll talk about the Pharisees a lot in, um, over the next two years, but I just want to warn you right off the bat to beware of your inner Pharisee, all right? Because I think we all have a little, a little inner Pharisee in us that wants to just kind of separate itself from the things around us that we're uncomfortable with. And so over the years, you know, I've kind of seen this. You're going to think I'm making some of this up, but none of this is made up. For instance, I've known people over the years who will be like, you know, I don't watch TV. People tell me, I don't watch TV. Don't have a TV in my house. Don't talk to me about what's on TV because I don't watch TV. TV is unholy. TV is ungodly. And I don't watch TV and I don't even, and, and I don't associate with people who watch TV. Don't do it because they're ungodly people. They've been polluted by TV. So we just, we don't have anything to do with that. It's their little inner Pharisee. And, and, or, or maybe people say, you know what? And I, and I still get this amazing, not here so much, but with people uh, at other churches will say, well, you know, I don't associate with people who don't use the only true Bible translation. There's only one true godly Bible translation and that's what I use. And so I don't, you know, that's all I read and I don't go to churches that don't use it, that don't use any other translation, right? And that's just a little, little inner Pharisee going on there. People say, in fact, I had this the other day, I don't, I said, you know, have you been to this restaurant? They're like, no, I don't, I don't go to restaurants like that because uh, they serve alcohol. And, and if they serve alcohol, someone might, you know, they might drink the alcohol. And if someone drinks the alcohol, they might, they might abuse the alcohol. And then, you know, they'll, there'll be a dinner and they'll get drunk and it, then it leads to, you know, they like cats and there's no end to it, that kind of stuff, you know. So I don't do that. I don't go to restaurants like that. Or people say, you know, I don't associate with people who belong to that other ungodly political party, right? Like I don't talk with them. I don't hang out with them. I've actually had people say, well, I, I suppose you could belong to that other party and not be saved, but I'm just, I don't know that I've ever met anyone like that. Or, you know, I get this, like, I don't associate, I don't, I really don't associate with, with families that public school their kids because, you know, public school system's so ungodly. And if you public school your kid, it's just proof that you don't, you don't love your kids. You don't care about your kids. And you just throw, you just throw them into the school system. Or I've had other people say, like, I don't associate with homeschooling families because everyone knows they're cult, you know, it's a cult and all that kind of stuff. Or I don't associate with people who worship differently, right? They use different songs. They raise hands or don't raise hands or dance or whatever they do. Or, you know, my, my system of theology is perfect. 
it's absolutely perfect and I really have disdain for anyone who has, who has any other right, form of theology, even if it differs just a little bit. In fact, there's this thing called three degrees of separation. I came across this and I, I love it. This is great. Some of you might ascribe to this, right? As a holy person, I don't associate with holy people who associate with unholy people. So sometimes you meet people, you've got to draw that, okay? And this, but this is the problem for the Pharisees and this is the problem they have with Jesus. Because Jesus ate and drank with sinners. Did Jesus sin? No. But he associated with, with, with sinners. And this is the problem that the Pharisees are going to consistently have with Jesus. Not that he's a sinner, but he associates himself with sinners. So they come to this house because they hear that Jesus is there. And Jesus is teaching. And Jesus teaches sinners. And he eats with sinners. He brings wine to the weddings. This is the kind of man that he is. So they come to this house and they're just sitting there. I, I mean, I picture them sitting in the front row. They're taking notes. They're live blogging, you know, to Jerusalem. They're going to do some fact checking. And, and basically they're there to find fault. They're looking for accusations against Jesus. And by the way, they're going to find him. So um, that's what the Pharisees are doing. And then there's some friends in this story. Now they're, they're, they're different than Pharisees. In verse 18, we pick up the story. Now behold, there were some men who were bringing on a bed or a cot, um, if you will, or even a mat, a man who was paralyzed. Now we don't know anything about his background, but he's paralyzed. He can't get there on his own. And they were seeking to bring him in and to lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down uh, with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. So this is, a, this is a great story, right? So Jesus is teaching in someone's home. He's not in a church. He's in a home. It's not going to be that big. Um, we think maybe it was Peter's home. So he's there and it kind of be like if, if for those of you in grow groups, it'd be like Jesus showing up at your grow group. Just, you know, you're having grow groups Thursday night and oh, here comes Jesus walking through the door. And what do you do when Jesus walks up? Well, you let Jesus teach, right? So Jesus is gonna, he's teaching and, and you know, people in the grow group are tweeting their friends. Hey, you know, Jesus is at my house tonight. He's teaching grow group. And so people are coming. They're just kind of inviting themselves over and they're coming into the house and the house is filling up with people. Pretty soon they're standing in the doorway, Pretty soon they're leaning in the windows. There's no room. There's a crowd out in the street. And, and even more awkward, there's these religious leaders who are there. They're not, they weren't invited. They just invited themselves. And they're kind of sitting, you know, in, in the front row. And there's this guy in town who's paralyzed. And he, he has some friends. Another gospel says there was four of them. So he has four friends. And apparently they hear that Jesus is in the neighborhood. So I don't know. They get this idea, right? The idea is, um, to take their friend to the, to the grow group meeting. Somebody's like, you know, I heard Jesus heals people and he might be able to help our friend. So um, they, they, they carry him on his mat, on his mattress, whatever this is, a, a stretcher, and they, they, they're taking him to the house. But as they get to the house, they can't get in because there's people in the doorway and people in the windows. So they're looking around like, how are we gonna get Jesus in the house? And one of the guys apparently has this, brilliant idea. We'll, we'll get up on the roof. Now, houses typically in, in those days, in that area, they would be flat on the top. And, and uh, there would be an out 
outdoor stairwell that would go up to the top of the roof. And usually they would use these as patios. And so there would be some timbers that would be laid parallel on the roof. And then um, running, you know, at a 90 degree angle, there would be like sticks and reeds and straw that would be laid down. And then they would put usually about a foot of earth on top of that. And they would, they would pack it down. And then if you had some money and it was a nice house, you would lay tile on top of that. And then you could go up there in the evenings, right? And, you know, you could kind of hang out and watch the sunset and have some friends over. So these guys decide to go up on the roof. We'll, we'll let our friend down, right, through the roof. So gee, I, this is what I picture. Jesus is teaching. He's kind of going, I don't know what he's teaching. doesn't say what he's teaching. The house is full. And, and as he's teaching, there's some noise up on the roof. Now, it's got a tile roof, so it's probably kind of loud when people are up there. And maybe they think people are just up there listening, but it's kind of getting noisy. It's kind of getting distraction, you know, distracting. Maybe a little bit of dirt starting to fall through, right? Like Jesus teaching, and there's some, some it made me think about, a couple years ago, I was in uh, Nicaragua, and I'm, I'm an easily distracted kind of teacher, and I was teaching one evening um, out in this remote place. I was teaching church leaders, and uh, the, it was during the mango season where mangoes were ripe, and if you've never seen a mango tree, they get pretty big, pretty expansive. And there's mangoes way up there. And they're kind of, they're getting about this big now. And so I'm teaching in the evening, and um, there's cars parked under this mango tree. And every now and then a mango falls off the tree and it just nails the car and it sets off the alarm of the car. And it'd be like being in here. It wasn't anything like being this big, but it'd be like the cars being in the parking lot there, but there's no windows in the building. It's just right out there. And the alarms are going off and, and apparently they're just used to it. So they just let them go off, you know? So like every now and then there's an alarm going off and there's mangoes coming down and I can't, I can't even remember like where I am. So I'm just thinking, Jesus, it's got to be distracted. He's, he's teaching and there's noise on the roof. And then, you know, a little bit of dirt follows, falls through. And then I don't know how it happens, but apparently a hole begins to open up right in the roof as he's teaching. And I always picture like in my mind at some point, some guy sticks his head down, you know, he's like looking around. So Jesus is trying to teach and this guy's, st- yeah, well, you know, we're in the right place and the hole's getting bigger. And then pretty soon, you know, they're put the mattress, they got some rope in there. So he's teaching, I don't know what he's teaching, just comes right down, lays him right down in front of Jesus. And what, you know, what's, it, what's he gonna do? And it, it makes me think. I mean, these guys, they obviously loved their friend, didn't they? I mean, think about what they were willing to do for their friend. They're willing to change their schedule. They probably all had plans and they hear Jesus in town, so they, they change their plans and they carry their friend through town. And when they get to the house and they can't get through the front door, they don't let that stop them. So they, they come up with a plan and, and they risk, you know, they're going to be messing with someone's roof, right? With private property. So who knows, you know, somebody could have got mad. They could have called the police. At the very least, they're going to have to fix the guy's roof. And, and they face, you know, maybe the police come and they, they face maybe, who knows, maybe Jesus would get mad. Maybe Jesus would reprove them. They don't, they don't know, but they're willing to go to great lengths, I think, simply because they love their friend and, and they're creative. My question for you is this. What would you be willing to do for your friends who don't know Christ? What would you be willing to do? How far would you be willing to go? What do you let stop you from introducing them to Christ?
I mean, we don't know a lot about these guys, but we know they were great friends. And another thing we know is this. They apparently had faith. They had enough of a conviction that Jesus could help their friend, that they were willing to do something outrageous, right? Something crazy, because they weren't going to let any obstacles keep them from getting their friend in front of Jesus. And I believe that they're really reflecting the heart of God at this point, that that's what God is asking us to do, that, that our faith in Jesus Christ, and that our love for people, and that our belief that the unbelievers around us need to be brought into the presence of Jesus, that that would cause us to get creative and, and bold and take chances like these guys to introduce our friends to Christ. But now contrast that with the religious leaders. The religious leaders are just sitting there. They're just sitting there and the, they're not, they should have been directing traffic to the house, right? The religious leaders, they, they should care about the souls of people. They should have been out in the streets going, man, you got, Jesus is here, you gotta come hear this guy. Here, you sit in our seat. You need to hear him. They should have, they should have been helping, you know, part the roof and helping the guy down, but they're not. They're just sitting there. That's all they do. They just sit and take notes, <laughs> yeah, and look for fault. My question for you is, who are you more like? Are you more like the Pharisees are you more like the friends? Which one are you like? Well, let's, let's look at what Jesus does because we, we got the Pharisees, we got the friends, and then we got Jesus. And this is what Jesus does. He just, he changes things. Uh, in verse 20, and when he, that is Jesus, when he saw their faith, that is the faith of these guys, this guy's friends, he says to this guy, he says, man, your sins are forgiven you. So I'm thinking that when I read it this week, I'm thinking, you know, they, they lower him down. People are like, what in the world? And he, you know, gets down and the guy's, I don't know, the guy's laying there on his mat, maybe rolls over and leans up and he's looking at Jesus. Jesus is right there. And everybody's waiting, wondering what Jesus is going to say. Like, right, what's going to come out of his mouth? And he's quiet for a minute. And then he says, hey, your sins are forgiven. And I, I kind of wonder if the guy and his friends weren't a little disappointed, right? Because that, I mean, he wanted to walk. That's what, they, that's what they brought him for. They're focused on this guy's secondary problem, right? His secondary problem is he's physically paralyzed. And I think that's what everyone else in the room is. They're like, oh, he's, he, wait, his sins are forgiven. Oh, I mean, that's cool, but we wanted to see the guy dance, you know? Like, now, I'm not saying that this isn't important, all right? But being physically paralyzed is not his biggest problem, right? It's not... I mean, his biggest problem is he's separated from God. His biggest problem is he's a sinner headed for judgment. It's not right with God. So Jesus basically, this is what he does. This is what a good friend does. He says, first, let's deal with your biggest problem, and then we'll work our way down, which is what Jesus does for us usually, right? When he comes to us, we meet with him. He's like, hey, let's start with your biggest problems. We don't always want to start with our biggest problems. Sometimes we want to start with the you know, smaller problems. What? You know, just, I'd like to walk. Jesus says, let's deal with your biggest problem. And I, I, I don't know, I picture Jesus like saying, hey, your sins are forgiven. And I picture Jesus kind of smiling and then going, there you go, buddy. And biggest problem solved. You're, you're, you're good now. And Jesus forgives his sin. See, Christianity is different from every human religion in this. It's not about keeping a set of rules or, or rituals or earning God's favor. See, that's what the religious leaders are all about. That is 
That's what it means right there. Instead, Christianity is about Jesus paying for your sin. And when you trust in Christ, two important words, trust or faith, basically the same word in the Greek. When you trust in Christ, he gives you his grace. He gives you his forgiveness. Christianity is not about, you know, where Jesus says, okay, well, I could see, you know, you're in a difficult situation, so go out and do these rules and keep these rituals and you can earn your way to heaven. It's about trusting in Jesus, right? And he forgives you by his, his grace. In verse 21, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, the religious leaders are all worked up at this point, all right? Because they know that only God can forgive sin. And they're right. They're on track here. Only God can forgive the sins of people. Now, the normal way that he, he does it in these days is through the temple and all that went on there. People would come, they'd take part in the sacrificial system. Um, there would be, you know, the shedding of blood. There would be rituals of cleansing. There are festivals that go along with that. So when Jesus comes along and claims to forgive sin, he kind of undercuts the entire sanctioned method of sins being forgiven. So he goes on in verse 22. It says, now when Jesus perceived their thoughts... He answered them. So by the way, you know, if someone, if you, if, if you can have a conversation with someone by them, you just think things and then they respond like you said it, you should probably listen to that person. That's, that's what's going. They think something and then Jesus responds. And he says, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? This is great. Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk. All right, so just let's think about this for a minute. He's saying which which is easier for me to say, hey, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk. See, both are impossible for a mere person to do. But one is easier to verify than the other, right? Because if someone says, hey, you know, your sins are forgiven, you're good to go. How do, you, how do you verify that? How do you know that that spiritual transaction has taken place? And so Jesus does something very interesting here. He takes something lesser, right, which is, you know, rise up and walk, and he uses it to show that he has authority and ability. So he says to the man, in fact, in verse 24, but to show you, to prove to you, to demonstrate to you that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, to prove it, to verify it, he says to the man who's paralyzed, rise, pick up your bed, and get out of here, right? Just go home. Now, he refers to himself as the son of man here, which we'll talk about more in the weeks to come. It's Jesus' favorite title for himself, um, used 25 times in the Gospel of Luke. It's from the, it's from the book of Daniel. It's a reference to the Messiah, as we'll see in the future, just the man who through, uh, through whom God would set up his kingdom. And the Pharisees, would, they would know this. They'd be picking up on this. In verse 25, and immediately the man rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on, and he went home glorifying God. Well, I would guess so, right? I would, I would guess that the man was praising God, was singing to God, hands in the air. People are like, you know, I mean, you can't blame him, right? Right? They might have, you know, the Pharisees are sitting there in the front row and you don't. And this man's just like worshiping and going crazy because you know what? 
that guy was having a good day, right? I mean, that's a good day. When you get carried to Jesus on a stretcher and then you carry it home, that's a good day. When you start the day as a sinner and you end being forgiven, that's a good day, not because of anything he'd done, but simply because of God's love and God's grace. And I'm, I'm so glad that Jesus healed that man physically, but even better, I'm glad that God forgave his sin. And that takes us to us. So what does this mean for all us, for, for us here? And I, I put it this way, believers are those who should be moved we are people who, when we read stories like this, these are not merely academic stories to us. These are not abstract ideas to us. Because when we read stories we're like, like this, we're like, you know, I've seen that. I mean, I've experienced that. I know people, I've seen people who have been forgiven of their sin, and it's obvious, and it moves us. It's not academic to us. We don't sit in the, in the pew with our arms crossed, taking a couple notes, going, yeah, I don't, I don't know about this. In verse 26, it says, an amazement seized them all. That would be a good church service, wouldn't it? An amazement seized them all, and they glorified God. And, and, and they were filled with awe. And they were saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. This should be us. This should be the way that we worship and the way we think about God and the way we talk about God. We should be people who are continually amazed at the, thing, the things that God is doing among us. And I said, this, I said it last week and I'll say it again. If we are not filled with amazement, it is not because God isn't doing amazing things. It's because we are not paying attention. We are not, we are not noticing. We are not capturing these things because God is always working and saving and, and doing things. The question is, are we, are we paying attention to the things that God is doing around us? When people are repenting of their sin, man, we should be rejoicing. When people get baptized, when they're willing to get wet for Jesus, we should be celebrating that. When, when people who once hated God become worshipers of God, when they walk into a worship service and they begin to sing to God, man, that, 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 should, be, that should fill us with awe. You know, people who were turned into messengers, who once didn't even know the gospel, now they're sharing the gospel with people who forgive others as they've been forgiven. People who go out into a messed up world and get into that messy world to seek uh, the lost and to carry on the ministry of Jesus and, and to find their friends and to bring them into the presence of Christ. These are the kind of things that should be filling us with awe and with joy. Well, I've said this before, but one of the reasons I like going to, to Nicaragua is every time I go there and I come back, it's kind of like resetting the gratitude button for me. Because I, I remember the first time I went and you, you go there and you can't drink the water and you, know, you, just, just all, you, you can't do all this stuff. And, you, and then I remember coming back here and just being like, Oh, I can, you know, I can drink the water. That's so amazing. I don't have to be afraid of the shower anymore. I can, you know, use the toilet the way God intended, you know. I mean, like I can eat any food that I want and it's not a, it's not a hundred degrees and 80%. I just remember like coming back and going, wow, this is, life is awesome here. And then a year later, I went back to Nicaragua and I realized, whoa, like I totally began to take all that for granted again. I've been back five times and every time I come back and I did it a few weeks ago, I decided that for one day, 
For one day, I was going to go out of my way to recognize every blessing in my life. And here's what I found. If you decide you're going to do that, you're not going to get anything else done that day. Like if you decide on a Tuesday, I'm going to go to work and just notice everything God's done. It's not, your boss is not going to be happy with you because you're not going to get anything done. All day long, you're just going to be like, oh, look, the sun's up. Oh, look, there's Starbucks. Oh, I didn't get hit and killed on the way to work. Oh, praise God. You just, I have a chair to sit in a oh, cubicle lie you know and you just her whole day will be filled with that the this is the folks this is the way we should be living filled with awe so here's the thing you know God has given you and it's in your notes and you know this is so you know this is coming God has given every one of us an oikos we talk about this all the time oikos is a Greek word that means extended household Back in Jesus' day, if you would ask somebody, hey, who's in your oikos? The, the, the Greek word there, who's in your oikos? You wouldn't, you wouldn't think who lived under your roof. You would think the people that you had loving, influential relationships with. That's what an oikos is. People you have loving, influential relationships with that you interact with on a regular basis. They're in your oikos. And so back in the days of Jesus, you know, that would, you might, it might be some people in your family. You might have some relatives who lived down the street or lived in another town, but they're in your oikos, friends and neighbors and, you know, people on a, maybe on a team that you're part of. And, and these are people that you have loving, influential relationships with. And so these guys, these guys brought their oikos to Jesus, right? That was their friend. And when Jesus came to, to town and they were thinking, oh, we got to get our oikos to Jesus. And that's, that's what they did. Now, we're told that the average American has anywhere from 8 to 15, some of you have more, people with whom you have loving, influential relationships and you interact with them on a regular basis. And here's what we tell you all the time. All right? There are people in your oikos. Some of them are saved. Some people in your oikos know Jesus, but some people don't. And one of the reasons that God has put those people in your oikos who don't know Jesus is so that you could love them with the love of God, that you could share the gospel with them. That, that because they need someone who loves them enough to rip open the roof for them, right? And to bring them into the presence of, of Jesus. So we tell you this all the time. There are three things you can do with your oikos, and every one of you have one. The three things you can do is this. You can invest in your oikos. You can invest your life. You can, you can give them your time. You can, you can pray for them. You can fast for them. You can invite them into your home and give them dinner. You can make room for them in your schedule. You can look for ways to show God's love to them, but you invest. You invest in their lives. The second thing you can do is you can inform. You can tell them about the gospel. You can tell them about Jesus. It, it might be in a casual conversation where maybe something about Jesus comes up and you could, maybe you just share your story with them or share something that God's done in your life. Sometimes maybe it's just literally laying out the gospel for them. And the third thing is you can invite. You invite them. You look for ways to invite them to cross the line and to trust Jesus. So sometimes that might mean you invite, you invite them to church because you know the gospel is going to be preached and they'll have an opportunity. A lot of you bring, you know, bring people at Easter. You bring people at Christmas because they're willing to come. And, you know, maybe some of you bring them to your grow group and you, just, you, you invite them to your grow group and into that spiritual community. And I know some of you have done that. But we look for ways to invest and to inform and to invite. And here's why I tell you this. Because the Pharisees were looking for ways to avoid unbelievers. 
But Christ followers look for ways, they seek out ways to introduce their, non, their non-saved oikos to Jesus Christ. Two different groups of people. Two different missions altogether. My question for you again is, which group do you belong to? Are you more like the, the Pharisees? You, you got a little inner Pharisee going on there and just looking for ways to avoid them, judge them, look down on them? Or like Jesus, are, are you looking to, are you seeking out people who are lost? Are you looking for ways to let them know about Jesus? Are you more looking for excuses or are you looking for ways to connect them with the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you more interested in judging sinners or seeing them forgiven of their sin? So, I mean, I want to invite you tonight to think about that. Which group are you a part of? And maybe for some of you, you, you can think for some of you, the, the, the way that you came to Christ was there was someone in your life or a group of people in your life who went to extraordinary lengths to introduce you to Jesus, who made tremendous sacrifices for you. My question is, are we willing to be those kind of people?